You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, quick word from a sponsor. It's actually a new podcast. It's called Outside the Box. And if you are a maker or a doer, an innovator, or just a consumer who wants to get a peek behind the curtain of some of the world's greatest organizations, you should check out this show, Outside the Box. The first episode features conversations with presidents and CEOs from organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, Feeding America, many more. There's going to be a bunch of episodes in this season uh, about all kinds of interesting and inventive approaches to business. Go check it out. You can listen and subscribe to Outside the Box in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to this show, which starts right now. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. And uh, here's Aaron Lammer to my right, Long Form, and to my left, Max Linsky. Hey, you guys. It's hot in here, but it's not Max's fault. <laughs> Don't blame Max for the heat in here. It's beyond his control. Just because he set up the studio, it's not his fault. Don't at us about the heat. <laughs> you know what? I know you guys are trying to make me feel worse, but it does actually make me feel better that you even care that I feel bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I care. I know. You care like a little bit. <laughs> I, 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 can, I, can, I can see the little wheels turning in your head. <laughs> <laughs> the little guilt wheels? <laughs> yeah, guilt, anger, guilt, anger. <laughs> uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week I interviewed Ginger Thompson. Uh, she is currently a senior reporter at ProPublica. Uh, she has an incredible story out now about... Uh, it's about the drug war in Mexico. Uh, it's in National Geographic. It's a joint production with ProPublica and National Geographic. So that was kind of the prompt by which I finally sent her an email, but I've wanted to talk to her for a long time. She used to be a reporter at the Times. She was a bureau chief in Mexico City. But since she's gone to ProPublica, she's written some really amazing stories, uh, one of them about the DEA Special Operations Division, which was in The New Yorker. And she's just a really, really incredible reporter. She's won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and I was just, I couldn't wait to talk to her. I'm excited for this one. That story is amazing. I would like to uh, pay a quick compliment. Yeah. ProPublica has been on fire. It's been so so good in 2017. I feel like uh, they have done tons of really big, really ambitious stories, and they've all been like important, and also uh, I couldn't put them down. When you're looking to do something ambitious and important, you have got to let the world know. No better way than with a MailChimp mailing list, but there's more to MailChimp. Read this summer. Dot com. We're doing a little project with MailChimp. We have uh, curated a reading list for them. There's uh, a bunch of different books on there. It's a collabo. 
It's a collab. It's a long form Melchip collab. Evan, what is a book on that list that you're excited about? One of the books on that list is Patient HM by Luke Dietrich. Uh, Luke was on the podcast. Luke is going to be in Decatur. And that book uh, has won a big uh, Pan American Science Writing Prize, I believe. The book is fantastic. You should buy it. You should check it out. Also, you should figure out how to get to Decatur because uh, you guys make fun of me a lot for enthusiasm not being expressed in my voice. But I am genuinely very excited to go to this book festival. I'm from Atlanta. It's a huge festival. It's got, in addition to the authors, we're bringing in an amazing selection of authors. I thought you were going to say we make fun of you for being Southern. I was going to say, <laughs> we have never made fun of you for being Southern. Well, now you're going to start that too. <laughs> well, here's Evan with Ginger Thompson. Ginger Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. Excited is maybe like the wrong sentiment given the the story that you have out right now. Because that, yeah. that's what prompted you, the story that's out in National Geographic right now. Right, and ProPublica. And ProPublica, right. um, where you work. Right. That's what, you know, I've been reading your stuff for so long. Yeah. And this has kind of prompted me to say, oh, I, I finally need to like Thank send you. that email and get you on the podcast. So I, I kind of wanted to start with that story and then sort of work backwards in your career a little bit sure. because partly reading this piece, which is just absolutely chilling and the reporting in it is extraordinary. It almost feels like it's a culmination of a, so much that you've done previously. Like it kind of like all comes together here. I don't know if you felt that way when you were doing it. I actually didn't set out for it to be that, but once it was done, it did feel like it put together sort of my expertise on Mexico because I've worked on Mexico or in Mexico for so many years in my career, but also really sort of pushed me to try something different. Mm. Um, I've written lots of stories about violence in Mexico, about drug trade, about the DEA and its operations in Mexico. And, you know, the wonderful thing about being at a place like ProPublica is we're constantly looking for ways to tell stories differently. And so we thought, what would be sort of the most different kind of format we could think of? And my editor, Tracy Weber, who is brilliant, um, had been reading some work by um, Svetlana Alekseevich mm -hmm. and had been reading the Chernobyl book and said to me, take a look at this. What do you think about writing about this massacre in this kind of way? And I then began not only reading the book, but reading some things about Svetlana. And one of the things she said that I thought was really interesting was that this kind of format only works for epic kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. And Mexico and its fight against the drug trade and its fight against corruption is nothing except epic. Mm -hmm. And so I thought the reporting challenge would be enormous. But it would also be sort of a, an opportunity for me at this stage in my career, at this stage in my writing about Mexico, to grow. Mm -hmm. so, so describe a little bit what the massacre was and, and what okay. took place. So in 2011, on a Friday evening, 
a convoy of gunmen descended on this quiet ranching town called Allende. Allende is about 40 minutes in a car from Eagle Pass, Texas. It is very much like Texas. You drive across the border there and Texas and Mexico look almost exactly alike. Mm -hmm. Their people are the same. The families are the same. The way they live is very similar. They play football on one side of the border and on the other side of the border, American football. So it's very much a place connected to the United States where families have relatives on both sides of the border. In March of 2011, um, this convoy of gunmen descended on this town and on some of the towns surrounding it and began rounding up people um, by the dozens. They picked up dozens of people. They took several of those people, or many of them, to a ranch on the outskirts of town there. And in full view of passers-by, of police, of fire officials, of military officials, they executed these people and burn their bodies. And the killing and the kidnapping connected with this massacre went on for weeks. In fact, the last victim that we were able to connect to this massacre and to the cause of this massacre was killed a year later. So how did you start your reporting process? I mean, obviously you have this whole background, which we'll talk about in in Mexico and reporting in Mexico, but this is something by its very nature, as you describe it, everyone's afraid. I mean, everyone's afraid because of what happened. They don't want it to happen to them. The police don't do anything about it. So you say, okay, I want to get deeper on this. Like, where do you even start? I go there. Yeah. Um, I fortunately still have friends in Mexico who I called to say, how safe is it? What's Allende like these days? So I did call ahead to sort of say, what are the roads like? Are they are there still Zeta checkpoints on these roads? Can I get there? I'm not a cowboy. I do um, move very carefully. And if I had thought it was really too dangerous to report there, I might not have done this. But my friends indicated that with some caution and respect for the people I was going to meet there, I could report safely. Mm -hmm. What I was more concerned about wasn't my safety because I would go in and be able to leave that same day and I didn't drive at night and I took certain precautions. I didn't talk a lot about exactly when I was coming or when I was leaving. Mm -hmm. But I was concerned that in a town as small as Allende, it would be known very quickly that I was working there and what I was doing. I was concerned about the people who who still live there. And they were concerned I, about that as well when I showed be. up at their door. And so there was always a sort of um, almost like a fear factor that I had to negotiate around every time I approached someone to talk to me about this story. And there were lots of times that people didn't talk to me the first time I went or the second. But I spent a year going back and forth to this town. And, you know, I slowly was able to build a circle of people who trusted me and who helped me get other people to trust me as well. And so the circle widened slowly, mm-hmm. but it widened. Because was there even an account of the victims that you, I mean, it was not like a list that you could say, okay, we'll start here and I'll just work my way down. No. Like, there, no one even. There had been some reporting about Allende prior mm-hmm. to my showing up. Mm-hmm. So the massacre happened in 2011. The government didn't go in to begin any sort of real investigation of that for three years. But once that three years 
happened once they conducted this mega, they called it the mega operativo, you know, a mega operation in which they took 250 guys in there to say, you know, here we are, the new government in the state of Coahuila, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. They started that, but then didn't really go anywhere or go very far beyond that. But as a result of that operativo, there were news accounts, both in local Coahuila newspapers and in places like Vice and El País, Mm -hmm. had written sort of accounts of the very first accounts of what had happened there. And so those accounts gave us, you know, some hints about the kind of people we should look at. But then again, really, it was building a list based on the first few people we met who gave us more names, who gave us more names, who gave us more names. And so slowly we were able to piece together our own list of who was missing, how they went missing, or at least according to the relatives' accounts of how they went missing. We pieced it together that way. Did you in that process, I mean, you said there was a lot of understandable fear among the people you were talking to. Did you have any sense in that process that the Zetas but there was awareness that you were reporting it or that people were afraid or anyone was threatened? Like, did that come into the reporting process at all? It did, but not until very late in the process. It wasn't clear to me whether it was organized crime that became upset, but the mayor of Allende became upset at one point. And I got a call from one of my sources saying that ProPublica and National Geographic had been banned from Allende. And When a mayor of a small town like that sort of starts telling people that they're not allowed to talk to you, it was hard for me to be sure whether that was him spouting off at a bar somewhere and he was just angry. Was that just him making sort of a government edict? Or was that him speaking on behalf of criminal forces that still operate in that area? Any one of those things bothered me. And we decided at that point to stay out of Allende for a couple of weeks. I worked with a Mexican colleague on this story who traveled there on her own a couple times. And she, more than anyone, worried me because Mm. she is a Mexican reporter. Mexican reporters have been killed in alarming numbers uh, there for doing this kind of reporting. And so I particularly didn't want her to um, travel there without me or or any of us uh, until I thought things had calmed down a bit. Mm. Um, it's so unnerving to just not know. Like you could go into a small town in America and report something and the mayor might be like, I don't like the way you're portraying my town. So it could be that. Right. Anything Absolutely. from that all the way to, to you know, I'm warning you, don't right, come back Right. You shouldn't come back. And so I decided to sort of, like I said, stay out, stay in touch with my sources see if any of them had been hearing similar things. You know, some of them knew the mayor. How serious was this? I think we got lucky in that there was also an election at the time coming. Mm. And so I think it allowed um, the election to almost serve as a distraction to him from what we were doing. And so the next time I went into town, I basically just tried to stay out of his way. And ask my sources not to really talk about the fact that I was there so that, you know, we didn't have this kind of tension. And I also tried to sort of let people in his government know that the story wasn't about him. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't going to be the focus of this story. It's Max. I'm going to put Ginger and Evan on hold for just a second. Tell you about Casper 
who's sponsoring the show this week. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress, and it comes at a shockingly fair price. Supportive Memory Foam creates an award-winning sleep service with uh, just the right sink and also, in addition, just the right bounce. You can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up. They'll refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit. And that's why they let you sleep on it for 100 nights risk-free, free shipping, and returns in the U.S. and Canada. They've got uh, over 20,000 reviews on the internet and 4.8 stars. People love this thing. It's the internet's favorite mattress, and it will be your favorite mattress if you go to casper.com longform and use the offer code longform because you're going to get 50 bucks off any mattress purchase. That's right, 50 bucks off any mattress by visiting casper.com longform and using the offer code longform. Terms and conditions, uh, they do apply. So some of the moments in the story are pretty devastating to read. And I'm I'm wondering in the moments of doing those interviews, I'm thinking particularly about the kid, the football the player. Year old, yeah, yeah. And his mother. And what is it like in uh, when you're doing that interview for you? Is it I'm just trying to get what I'm here to get? Or do you find yourself oh, caught no. up in the moment? I don't think you can get people to tell you those stories if they sense at all that you're there for you. Mm-hmm. And it's not a shtick with me. I'm, I am deeply interested in them and telling their stories, which is another reason I really liked the idea of telling this as an oral history. Mm-hmm. Because for the first time, the reporter's not going to be there analyzing, connecting dots necessarily. You know, the only, my involvement was sort of ordering the the voices yeah, putting them in a certain in order but the narrative that w- we called the connective tissue in which there is some narration to help a reader get from one scene to another we tried really hard to make that as spare and as invisible as possible so that what really shouted through were the stories of people like Claudia you know who lost her 15 year old son who had just gone to hang out with friends on a Friday night like all 15 year old boys want to do and happens to be in a place that was targeted by the set dozen. Instead of leaving him, they took him with everybody else. And so her story was incredibly powerful to me and the way that she tells the story, but not just the way she tells the story, but the way she has survived what happened to her. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's real power in her ability to overcome that and to try to help other families. I mean, and so it's a very painful interview. There are times when I do feel myself choking up and you, you know, you struggle to stay composed through some of those interviews. All of them were hours of time with these people and sometimes several times. So most of these people I interviewed many more times than one Mm -hmm. um, to really get them to dig deep. The first interview, as you know, with a person is often sort of the getting to know you interview. By the third interview where they feel they know you and you know them a little bit, you can really sort of probe a little deeper. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I was working toward with these folks. And you got to these details. I'm thinking in particular, there's one detail where one, one of the victim's relatives calls, I think it's 
maybe the chief of police or some town official who's at a wedding. That was Claudia. That was her. <laughs> that was and Claudia. Says, my son has disappeared, and he just says, "There's nothing I can There's do." There's nothing I can do. And it's just like, well, but it made me wonder the volume of what you must have amassed in order to get to that detail. One of the questions in these kind of projects is always, "How did you know when when it was time to stop? Like, how did you know when X number of hours of interviews were enough to?" create the story you wanted to create? Or did that come from external pressure? I think my editor sort of said, all right, no. Because um, I can report forever. Yeah. I, I, I love reporting. I think, though, that there is a moment where you feel like I've got it. I've got her. I've sort of squeezed all the juice out of the orange. I mean, I've really dug deep. I remember with her, it was when she told me how the authorities had come to her and described what a witness told them about her son's death. And it was that, you know, they had picked up this 15-year-old kid. He had no idea what was going on or why. He's at this ranch with a whole bunch of other people he didn't know. He was crying just intensely crying and whining and screaming and sniffling, and the septas just couldn't take it, so they shot him. They shot him in the head, and they killed him. And she said, you know, that's when I lost it, and that's when I nearly lost it in the interview. And she said, how do you, what kind of monster kills a 15-year-old because he's crying, because he's afraid? What kind of person does that? And, you know, one, I knew I needed that scene in the story, and it felt like I had really gotten her to to tell me. And so there were probably moments like that with all of them. Again, I'm not sure I sort of on my own said, okay, I've got enough to write. But I did feel that my editors, you know, said to me, all that you've told to us from your reporting suggests you might have a draft. At least let's give a draft a try, Ginger, <laughs> shall we? And so once I did that, I felt like they were they were probably right. Sounds like an editor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a whole, but there's a whole other side of the story, which was getting, and this to me was almost as extraordinary as going and getting those stories, was actually getting the assistant U.S. attorney and getting the agent involved. Yeah. So the part you haven't described yet right. is is how this massacre came about, which is what comes to light in right. the story. Well, so this massacre and what was so attractive about this particular killing spree in Mexico for us was that it had strong ties to the United States, mm-hmm. that its origins were in Dallas, Texas, in the suburbs of Dallas, and that you know we thought that this would be a really great way to give like a 360-degree view of what Mexico's drug war looks like. And Mexico's drug war is fought with enormous support and sometimes leadership by U.S. officials. And we don't often get to see that. We don't often make those connections. And I've been trying to write about those connections for years now. But this, to me, was the most vivid example of how it works and how it can go wrong. And so this operation in Dallas involved a DEA agent named uh, Richard Martinez, who had an informant inside the Setas cartel. And he convinced that informant to get him the trackable phone numbers for the leaders of the Setas cartel. And this informant did so because Richard Martinez and the DEA had threatened to arrest this informant's mother and his wife if he didn't cooperate with them in this way. 
So he did. He provided the numbers. The DEA, against the wishes of the informant and against Richard Martinez's wishes, I believe, because of what Richard told me, shared those numbers with Mexican officials, taking a bit of a risk because this was a particular unit that had had some problems with keeping sensitive information out of the hands of bad guys, mm-hmm. gave the information hoping, you know, the objective was good, hoping that these numbers would help them capture the leaders of the Setas cartel. In fact, the information about those numbers went straight back to the leaders of the Setas cartel. When they figured out that there were snitches among them, they figured out pretty quickly who the snitches were because only a few people could have had those numbers. And they went after those snitches and anyone connected to them. And so those were the people who were the targets of the massacre. And what was your sort of way into knowing that the numbers were the cause? Like, did you, was that something that was reported somewhere before, or did you find that out in the course of this reporting? There had been um, court testimony that suggested that the numbers might have been a reason. It wasn't the numbers. It was that these guys were informants for the DEA, and somehow the DEA found out, or these guys had robbed the setas. And so... It was not until I was able to speak to the lead informant in the case who said it was the numbers. And Mm -hmm. let me explain to you why it was the numbers. And he sort of went through his whole story of how he got the numbers, how he transferred the numbers, how he gave the numbers to this agent Richard Martinez and said, don't do this, how when the killing started happening, Richard Martinez said to him, I'm sorry, this wasn't my call. It was my boss's call. And so it was that informant's interview that really opened this up for me and said, we have to keep pushing. And he sort of helped me think about how to go after um, the U.S. law enforcement side of, mm-hmm. of the story. And he he's in prison now, that informant, or was at the time you're he, reporting. He was. Uh-huh. He was at the time. And how much resistance did you have to overcome to get those interviews, on-the-record interviews, with these agents talking in a way that is from all the, that I've, I've read a lot about this area. They just, they don't talk about mistakes like that. No, they don't. It was very complicated to get the DEA to allow me to speak with Richard. I think part of the reason they finally did is that it became clear to them how much I was reporting around Richard and around what had happened. And I had spoken to enough people to have some sense of what Richard's story was without Richard. And at that point, you know, you press hard on the DEA spokesperson to say, wouldn't it be better to at least allow his voice, to allow him to give his side of this account? And it wasn't easy. I only was able to speak to Richard once. I Mm. tried to speak with him more than once. But the DEA was absolutely adamant that there were certain questions they didn't want to answer. They certainly didn't let me speak to anyone above Richard, which Mm -hmm. is where these decisions really were made. And so there's still a part of this story that I wasn't able to get. And I'm not sure it's because there's no story there or because the DEA just didn't want to tell me. But questions about what happened when the agency realized that this information had been compromised. You know, what did they do? Did they 
pursue an investigation of their own to figure out where the leak was so that they wouldn't have such a leak again? Did they press on Mexican authorities to investigate this crime as an organized crime attack. I mean, the federal authorities in Mexico never picked up this case because they said there wasn't enough evidence that it was linked to organized crime and therefore wasn't a federal offense. That's fairly laughable. Yes. Considering it, you verified what 60 everybody people Everybody verified. It, there was no secret that this was a SETA attack. You know, the reasons for it, what triggered it, those things were sort of unclear. But the fact that this was a hit ordered by the SETAs was clear from almost the moment that it happened. Mm-hmm. So. so when you sat down to take this approach, this sort of oral history approach, how was it different from writing a, nor- a typical article that you would write? Like, did you do anything differently, or how did you sort through that material? Yeah, and, everything. A lot was different. A lot was different. I don't often carry tape recorders for all of my interviews, mm-hmm. and I did this time just pretty much. There were some people who actually refused to allow me to record them, So, but wherever I could, I recorded because... I didn't want to miss a single word. You know what I mean? I didn't want to miss a single expression or the way they said something. And so the language was much more important because I needed them to tell longer stories. These weren't, I wasn't looking for quotes. Right. You know what I mean? I was looking for stories and I needed to understand their language. So that was um, hard. And it was harder to get people to put the recorder on. People are much more comfortable with a notebook. So the recorder was an issue. Um, But also just organizing the story. I write a lot about the setas in Mexico and all of that, and you understand this. But so many readers who we wanted to reach with this story don't know really what the setas are or don't really understand how law enforcement operations work or don't really understand sort of how the border works. You know what I mean? And so... Putting this together in a way that would make sense, that you've got characters on both sides of the border, all the characters in the story, whether they're American or Mexican, have Latino names. So, you know, just writing it in a way that would allow readers to actually follow it Mm -hmm. and remember who was who. And, you know, for that, the layout for this thing was so important and, you know, we had a directory that people could click on if they had forgotten who Ernest Gonzalez was or who Richard Martinez was because we knew that there were going to be challenges with following this kind of format. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went through so many rewrites on this. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say um, how long we worked on writing this piece because you know I had come into the piece knowing so much about it you know, my initial tries at writing it were not really going to be the kind of thing a reader outside the story could follow. So mm-hmm. we, it went through several several rewrites. Mm-hmm. And it also struck me, it's funny when I was reading it, I actually wasn't even thinking about the Chernobyl book. I was just thinking that oral histories are sort of in today's like media, like wasted on kind of like how Nirvana's first album got made, like things like that. There's all these pop culture oral histories. I've, I've read many of them, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which are fun. Yeah, uh, totally. But that this format, especially, as you say, like people who are familiar with what's happening in Mexico or what has happened, they also may just 
that brutality may just be something that they've read in the news many times and sort of think, oh, 20 people die, 30 people, 50 people. Right. That's just something that happens there. And like trying to bring it to life, right. it felt like that was a big part of what this format was doing. Well, that's what we were trying. I mean, one of the things I said to my editors is, how many times have I written the phrase, a town that was controlled by drug traffickers? Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that really meant right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to live in a town that's controlled by drug traffickers? And how does it get that way? And one of the things I was hoping that we could do by having the people who actually live through that explain it to us was that, to bring you close to that and say, no, here's what that means. And here's how it happens. And it's little deals that end up one after another, just suddenly, you know, as one mayor told me, They're going from moving drugs across the border to having their kids going to school with your kids. They're members of the Lions Club. They're at all the big social events. They are embedded in your society. And so I wanted to try using the voices of the people who've actually gone through this, use them to help explain and really make that more vivid and real. Mm -hmm. One more detailed question I want to ask you about that particular story at the very end, you have the interview with the agent, uh, Martinez. Yes. Richard Martinez. And the DEA spokesperson, Handler, is there. Yes. And then it's it's sort of prominent because it comes right at the end. And I'm right. interested about the choice right. to have a little bit from the, the, from the sort spokesperson. of spokesperson who's listening on this interview and sort of interjects right. their view. Well, look, this is an oral history. And it was very important to have the DEA view of what happened in Allende. How does the agency view what happened? And I didn't go into the interview thinking that Russ was going to be a character in the story, but the conversation evolved in such a way that it became clear to me when I left that that was the agency's most you know, vivid and clear Response And so I didn't have to have some, you know, statement in the narrative section where I say the DEA in a statement says, Mm -hmm. which would have been so boring, one. And two, I don't think it would have been as powerful an articulation of how the DEA sees this. And I thought that he, in that conversation, spoke very passionately about how he viewed Richard and his career and how challenging this is for the DEA and how sympathetic the DEA was to the plight of the families who lost relatives in this thing. And he said, you know, our hearts go out to these people. It's terrible what happened. But, you know, he said, we don't have blood. This isn't a story where the DEA has blood on its hands. And and so when when he said those things, I thought, that's that's it. That's material. And that's the best way to really convey the agency's thoughts about the story. It was kind of fascinating when he said that because nowhere did the story say the DEA is blood on its hands. But him using that phrase sort of made it, just put it out there that that's the question that's being considered here in part. And again, it was a good moment because I didn't need to say it. And that's the beauty of oral histories is I don't need to tell the reader, well, understand reader, the Setas took over this town, so they didn't have anyone to go to. The people are explaining how that happened. I didn't need to say that the DEA, that there's this question about who's really at fault here. Does the DEA share some culpability? He's saying it. And I think it makes the material more powerful to hear directly from the people involved than to have 
this third person, the reporter, kind of say, dear reader, here's how you're supposed to feel about this, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I want to sort of step backwards. So you came to ProPublica from the Times, right. where you were for 15 years. That's right. For how much of that were you the Mexico City? I was in Mexico City for the Times from 2000 to 2006. Okay. And then I continued to report about Latin America and counter-narcotics work and efforts from the Washington Bureau. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to New York and was on the investigative unit where I also wrote about Mexico and the drug trade and counter-narcotics work. So I've been writing about Mexico even before the times I worked for in Mexico for the Baltimore Sun before mm-hmm. that. So I've been writing about Mexico longer than I really want anyone else, <laughs> longer than I want to admit. But uh, it's been a long time. <laughs> but it also, I feel like when I was going back through the stories, I could see how the type of knowledge that you develop over time sort of manifests later. Like, for instance, even just back in, I think it was 2012 when you were still at the Times, there was a story about the same, the guys that they're trying to get the numbers in the National Geographic story to get about those guys laundering money through buying quarter horses in the United States. Right. Well, that's in a way how I came back to the massacre. Mm. At the Times, I had written about how the Setas were laundering money through the quarter horse industry in um, Texas. And years later, when I'm at ProPublica, I decided to go back and take a look at some of the testimony. I didn't cover the trial that resulted from that investigation. So uh, when I was looking around for things to write about at ProPublica, I went back and looked at some of the testimony in that trial. And in the quarter horse trial, there was testimony about a massacre. And there wasn't a lot of talk about the massacre. There weren't a lot of details about the massacre because the trial was about quarter horses and laundering money. But I began to kind of think about, well, what is that? And I started doing some reporting around this massacre. What massacre? And when I found sort of these reports out of Coahuila about this thing that had happened in 2011 and so went back at the story this way. Hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was wondering from all of that time reporting in Mexico and also reporting on the drug trade in particular is how you sort of developed a sense of what's reliable sourcing for some of this. I'm thinking of, you know, in that time story, there's an example of an informant who ends up dead. Right. Uh, who, Ramiro. Who, previous to him being killed, right. has told a friend that he's witnessed right. the cartel boss killing someone and putting them in a vat of acid. That's right. And Without getting, we don't have to get too deep into that story specifically, but it struck me as an example of there's some context in which if you work at the Times, like someone might be like, you need two sources for this. And and that's something like, it strikes me as not possible to get another source than the one you had. And over time, like, how do you write about this stuff that is so hard to penetrate as a reporter? Well, I actually had more than one source for that particular story because, you know, a lot of people had been working around Ramiro, the guy who got killed. Mm. There was his handler in federal law enforcement, and there were other informants who had actually brought him to federal law enforcement. It's complicated to explain, but there are sort of almost networks of people 
in this country and in Mexico who were either law enforcement in Mexico or had some connection to the drug trade who provide information to U.S. authorities. They, you know, the DEA has Mexico wired. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And so I've been able not only to get agents to talk to me, but some of these sources who provide information to the Mm. DEA. And those sources have proven incredibly valuable on stories like that one, on stories like the massacre story, because they're often able to tell me things that the DEA is doing that the DEA won't tell me. So then I go to the DEA and say, hey, I heard about this. And they're going, like, how the hell did you hear about that? Um, So I often don't go with things if I have only one source. There's usually another way to get it. Somebody else knows about whatever kind of important fact I'm trying to get. And so it's just a matter of figuring out where else that might be. Did you, when you started reporting in Mexico, I guess for The Sun originally, did you think it was going to be so much about the drug trade at the time? I mean, what what was your... What brought you there in the first place? I grew up on the border. Mm. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. Mm -hmm. So I have been sort of close to Mexico since I was in high school and began speaking Spanish. In high school, I'd spend my weekends in Ciudad Juarez. So I've had a relationship with Mexico for a long time. When I first went for the sun, the story for me wasn't the drug trade. I was a Latin America correspondent, so I traveled all over the region for them and NAFTA was the big story when I first went. I wrote a lot about that. The story, the biggest story I did for the Baltimore Sun was this series of stories about Honduras and about U.S. involvement in the training and uh, financing of what was called, it was a secret military unit called Battalion 316 that was responsible for disappearing hundreds of suspected leftists. And so I spent a lot of time between Chiapas, because there was the whole Chiapas rebellion, and Honduras doing this series of stories for John Carroll at the Baltimore Sun. I I was going to get to that Honduras story because it feels like it has some real parallels to this current, the story that you just have out in terms of this sort of unintended consequences of U.S. involvement, right, right, and then kind right. of, uh, okay, we're going to now we're turn out the blind eye. We're yeah, out. It was we're out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no blood on our hands. Yeah, I think that Honduras at the time was, n- no one even, I mean, if I think people don't understand the set those people at that time just weren't even thinking about Honduras. It's kind of like, where's Honduras? You know, um, the Central American Wars had been over for a while by then. And so there were a lot of my colleagues in Mexico City sort of scratching their heads and wondering why I was spending so much time in Honduras. John Carroll, I think, wisely said, you know, this is the time we can get people to talk. Mm. They wouldn't have talked about this earlier. This is the time when we might be able to get the CIA to, with some pushing, give us documents that really lays out their role. And so, again, we spent about a year, probably more than that, working on those stories was your training for this kind of work, was it sort of on the job coming yes. up as a newspaper reporter? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I had no pre... I mean, I landed in Mexico City the first time as, you know, I was 28. I had never lived abroad. I thought I knew Mexico, but knowing the border is not really knowing Mexico. Mexico is very different at the border and in the center of the country and the south. They're just different countries. They have different foods. They speak slightly different Spanish. So it's a very, they're very different places. And and Mexico City is a very complicated, 
you know, very sophisticated, very complicated place to work. And so figuring out the power and networks of power and who was who, and it was still, you know, sort of the last gasps of the pre in those years and sort of understanding that change. I don't think I understood it at the time. I think I landed in sort of, you know, huge learning curve. um, And it took me a while to get my head around the story. But I fell in love with it immediately. I just, I loved the challenge. I loved the fact that Mexico and its story, there's so much fascinating history that revolves around everything that happens today in Mexico and sort of the relationships people have with one another and the relationships they have with their government and the struggles to really become a democratic sort of rule of law kind of country and, you know, how those efforts are foiled time and time again was just really, it's a fascinating reporting assignment. I'm curious what the experience is of being particularly at the Times, you know, you were Times bureau chief. Is that, does that feel like, for lack of a better word, like a powerful position in Mexico that people, when you write something, like people are going to pay attention to it? Yeah, I almost felt there are times I would say to people, I feel like I'm reporting for a local newspaper because what the Times writes there has so much importance. Um, The Mexican government is very sensitive to what the outside world thinks about it. And the Times is the most powerful newspaper in the world. And so you write something and you get a call from the presidency. You know, you ask and you can sit on the president's airplane or on his helicopter as he's flying into some disaster zone. It is almost a diplomatic role in some Mm. ways. You're just, you have that much access to people at high levels of the government. And what you write can have real impact on the way people feel about their government and the way the government sort of projects itself outside of Mexico. Did you experience that with your stories in either a very positive or negative light? Both. Mm. You know, I think there were times when, you know, we were writing about the elections that brought Felipe Calderón to the presidency. And, you know, we were criticized very strongly by his supporters who believed that our coverage was biased toward López Obrador. And it was a very tricky, complicated time in my time in Mexico City. And we decided to sort of, you know, stand by our reporting and just go forward. I didn't really feel like engaging with a lot of the criticism because I felt in a way that's what his people wanted was for to kind of engage in a fight with the New York Times. Which, Pull you into the... Yeah, we just didn't want to engage with that. We sort of let it pass. Uh, he won the presidency and we, we all sort of moved on. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fortunate thing when you're working at a place like the New York Times is they may be mad at you, but they want to find a way to have a relationship with you. And so everybody kind of at some point decides to move forward. Mm-hmm. And how did you sort of make your decisions about what to cover across all of Latin America? Like do you have a span of possible stories that's just so incredibly vast every day. What, what's the process of saying, okay, this is worth doing? Yeah, it's a really complicated thing. I think that is the most complicated thing we do as correspondents or people who write about foreign places is choosing the story and conceiving the story. And I don't have a formula. I think that I'm 
often drawn to things where, you know, there's a very powerful human story at the heart of it. Because I think those stories transcend borders. I think people understand mothers and workers, and they're just common kinds of things that that we all share. And so I look for those stories. You know, if I can find a story that has a powerful U.S. component to it, I'm drawn to those because I think people are interested. People in the United States, I'm writing for an American audience, are drawn to stories where there's an American element or role Sometimes it's fun. Are they humorous? I wrote a story about this book that came out called Ricas y Famosas, and it was one of my favorite stories that I did there. It was this tiny story, but it was just about this book that had come out that had profiled all these very wealthy women in Mexico. And wealthy women in Mexico are often very secretive about the fact that they have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But this just laid it all out, and it (laughs) caused this whole kind of conversation at all the dinner parties I was attending. I was like, I'm going to write about this book and the author. And it was just, it was a great sort of slice of life of Mexico. And it also said something different about Mexico than I think most Americans understand. And that is that it's got incredible wealth. People of great sophistication who travel all around the world. Mexico is not sort of a place of poor, the poor workers who do so much of our work in this country that we don't want to do. There's this whole sort of sophisticated cosmopolitan side to Mexico City that I don't think people really understand that well. I saw you did a profile of Carlos Slim oh, at one yeah. point. Or I tried. Yeah. I don't think it was a very <laughs> successful profile. It didn't um, seem like he gave a lot of access. No, <laughs> he hasn't with me. He has with other reporters. And really? Thank God for them. I certainly tried. I mean, look, he's the most power, one of the most powerful men in Mexico, one of the wealthiest men in the world. We needed to have an eye on him. And I remember making some lame attempt to write a profile of him. I, you know, it's not my proudest work. I think it was fine. Yeah. At I, the time, I, it was fine. I, but. It caught my eye because I think it was before he, like, did that investment in the Times. Yes, it uh, was. It was thing. well before <laughs> that. Thank God I did not have to deal with that story. But, yeah, yeah. So I also, there's a story that I can't let pass without talking about it, which is the story you did, which was also a ProPublica story that ran in The New Yorker about the DEA. Uh, special operations and their efforts to catch quote unquote narco terrorists and the questions around that. Right. So and these guys in Mali. Yeah. So my story focused on these three guys from Mali, and it was it was the one time where the DEA sort of put forward what it believed were. Uh, narco terrorists connected to Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. huge fish, right? And so the goal was to just sort of take that case apart and also take a look at all the other cases that the DEA touted as narco terrorism cases to show sort of how those cases were made. And what we found was that the narco terrorism or the link between drug trafficking and terrorism that existed in those cases existed in the sting operations that had been staged by the DEA. So there were these sting operations in which the DEA inserted either a drug trafficker or a suspected terrorist and lured people into narco-terrorism conspiracies. And so many of those cases, by the time they worked their way through court, if they got to trial, ended with judges saying, there's no terrorism here. You know what I mean? There's drug trafficking or there's sort of bad deals going on, but I don't see this person as a terrorist. And these Malians were were sort of a primary example Mm -hmm. of that. One of the reasons I'm so interested in that story, partly because I cover related topics, but also when it comes to access, when you're dealing with 
agencies, government agencies. Obviously, this is something you write about in an ongoing basis. Right. How do you think about how, or do you think about how any one particular story will affect your ability to do stories later? Do you Absolutely. just say like each one is its own, or like, no. okay, I'm going to try to make sure that I'm fair enough that they'll let me back the next time? I think that's it's the latter more than anything. I think that. I think all reporters have to think about access, and it's just the reality of what we do. I try really hard to make sure that no one who I've, I'm writing about can say, this was an ambush. You know, she didn't tell us what she was doing. We had no idea this was coming. We didn't have an opportunity to respond. She didn't come to seek our opinion. She didn't ask us first before she reached X conclusion. If anything, I think my sources would say that they kind of get tired of me calling over and over again. Um, but the DEA is is complicated and i think that you know i don't think that they would say that they love the sort of points that my story makes but i also think that they would say that i go to great lengths to make sure that as much as i can as much as they will allow me their perspectives are conveyed in the story their viewpoints their arguments exist inside my stories and they're never surprised that a story happens you know what i mean i make sure that everybody knows far in advance what's coming and what it says and why it makes these assertions and and so far knock on wood that's worked. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It's mm-hmm. not that everybody is excited when I my voice is on the other end of the line. But I think, you know, it's not about liking me. And I don't think I take it personally. They don't take my calls or my criticism personally. At least I hope not. I think it's really just about trying to say to them, you know, I am going to fulfill my journalistic commitments to make sure that I get as fair and balanced and complete a story as possible. And that so far works. Does ProPublica, does that feel like a name now that either opens or closes doors? Like when ProPublica started, it was kind of like, what? No one knew what it was. What is this thing? And now, and then you say nonprofit, they're like, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, But now if you call someone, they're like, oh no, Pro, like. They do know what it is in the last year or year and a half. And, you know, Donald Trump has been. Um, has had an interesting influence on independent journalism. I think he sort of ushered in a new golden era in which, you know, I'm getting calls from young people now who want to be journalists Mm -hmm. again, which is really cool. So, yes, I do think that in the last couple of years, we've really come into our own, I think, because we've been able to do some work that really transcends. And so people are really appreciative of investigative journalism in ways I think they didn't think about as much until now Mm -hmm. when it's become so important. So many good stories coming out of ProPublica now. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Did you think about, I know you're a national correspondent for The Times for a while and you won a Pulitzer for a part of that series on race, which was... Uh, I went back and read that story, too, oh. the story about the well, thank um, you. plantation yeah. national park. Yeah, uh, Magnolia. It really captured something that I feel like people are still talking about today in this unique way, which is like 
this white descendant of this plantation owner saying, like, we should turn this into a museum. Right. For and, cotton. Let's know, like, please tell the story of cotton. And uh, African-Americans coming and saying, there's, a, there's something missing here. There's like a slave quarters, an original slave quarter yeah. on your property. Maybe we should tell the story of slavery on this plantation. And that one and par- the struggle. park ranger who, yeah. who does. Yeah. yeah. The, the struggle over history and who's history is the right history was sort of the thing I was hoping to really delve into there. It's why I loved the story. It's because, you know, so much history, you know, the ugly side of our history has gotten lost over the years precisely because the benefactors, the people who can give us the places on which we might tell these stories don't want those stories told, right? And so here is this woman who, you know, wanted her plantation to be a tribute to her family and what she believed their contributions were to the South. And it was all about cotton and the cotton trade. And I don't think she expected the um, historian who would show up at her door to be African-American, first of all. And when she was, and Carla saw these slave quarters on the property, immediately she implored um, the owner of this plantation to let her tell the story of slavery. And so it was a year, I spent a year with them as they sort of negotiated how they were going to turn this plantation into a museum. It that was feels like fascinating. It's, you've talked about spending a year on I've a lot of, several stories. A lot of one-year things in yeah. my life. Yeah. Yeah. I've been very lucky in that I've had chances to really go deep on people. And you seem to, it seems like you probably could have gone and been a foreign correspondent in other places or... Uh, but you seem to circle back to Mexico in a way. Yeah. And I'm wondering why. I, I think, you know, there are often times where I say to myself, this is the last Mexico story, and <laughs> I get another Mexico story. Part of it is, you know, at this point in your career, you have a series of sources and you have an expertise, and people call you about this subject. And, you know, I almost didn't do this last story because I thought, we, we've told so many stories like this, who's going to care? But when I thought about trying to tell it in this new way, it presented a new challenge to me. So I, you know, was drawn to it partly for that. Um, I really think it's that I am much more in love with the subject than I, I often like to sort of admit. And, you know, I'd like to think that I'm, I've got broader interests and I can do a variety of things, but I'm drawn to this story because I know it. But the more I know, I think the more layers I see, the more that I think about uncovering. And so I get sucked in every time. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is related to that, which is you also had this piece a while back in The Atlantic that was sort of like some veterans of the drug war who were kind of like around a table just talking about how it had gone and how, you know, on, on all sides, right. law enforcement and right. someone who worked for the cartel. Right. And the thing that occurred to me when I was reading it was that you are also one of those people. <laughs> like, you have been following this or just issues that come up again and again, the border, yeah. immigration, yeah. now it's the wall. Yeah. And you're careful in your stories, it feels like, to not editorialize about, like, let's say the drug war writ large, really, you're letting the story tell itself. But I'm, how do you feel about it? Like, do you feel like, what are we doing? Like, we're just going through these cycles again and again? Or like, what, emotionally, when you see these stories, wh- wh- how do you feel for having seen them for so long? Yeah. 
it's hard for me. I, I know a lot of DEA agents, and I respect very much what they do and what they try to do. Um, and I understand what they're trying to do. At the same time, it's really hard to spend time talking to women like Claudia Sanchez about her 15-year-old son and not wonder whether we are, you know, whether we're sort of spinning our wheels down there and at an enormous cost to Mexican communities. And so there are times when I, I look at the way the agents and their relationships with their informants and the sort of, you know, the captures they make. And then the next day, there's a new leader of the cartel or there's some fight for leadership of the cartel that's dragging in journalists and and other innocent people who are just getting churned to death, literally, in this constant sort of fight. And so it does make me feel a little hopeless about where this is going and hopeless about the fact that there doesn't seem to be any interest in Congress or among our leadership to really sort of take an accounting of what we are achieving or not in the drug war and making some clear-eyed assessments about how to go forward if we go forward. I don't want to say that Mexico and the United States shouldn't work together to fight the drug trade or to fight organized crime. But at the same time, this way is only causing more death, mostly for Mexicans and, frankly, for us, because drugs are still coming in large numbers. We are in the middle of a huge addiction crisis. Mm -hmm. Mexico's involved in that. So you feel a little hopeless at times. And sometimes I feel like, why do I keep writing these things? Is anyone listening? You keep wishing that these kinds of stories would resonate not just to the agents and to the people in Mexico, who, but to the people who have the authority to really think about what we're doing, think about the costs and the benefits, and make some decisions that might lead to better outcomes. And does that end up infecting your work in some ways, do you feel like? Or are you able to put that thinking aside? I mean, I'm also thinking of just the way that our current politics even discusses Mexico. It's right. just, it's operating at such a superficial level. Do you think like, well, how do I... How do I, I penetrate pen that? Yeah. yeah, of course, I think about it. You know, people always ask me, do you think this will make a difference? Do you think this story will make a difference? And I always say, look, I don't know. I do know that not telling these stories is certainly not going. So my feeling is that do I want people to know Claudia's story or do I want to just throw up my hands and say, well, it's not going to make a difference? No, I want to I want people to know Claudia's story. And if her story resonates just a little, if it gets people like you and your listeners and people in Mexico where it's had a huge reception, if it gets people taking a new look at their reality, if it dignifies her loss and her son's death, you know, I'm good with that. And so I'm driven to continue doing this work because these stories to me are meaningful and need to be told. And, you know, if I spend all my time sort of wondering whether Washington's going to care, I'd probably never write anything. And so I just plow forward, you know. Well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you, Ginger Thompson, for coming on the program. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor this week is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our associate producer is Courtney Harrell. Our sponsors are Casper, Outside the Box, and, of course, MailChimp. Don't forget to go to readthissummer.com. We are curating a series of authors to appear at the Decatur Book Festival in Atlanta. Come if you can. If you can't, go to readthissummer.com. Check out the books. Read along. They're all fantastic authors. We will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.